Well, thank you all for coming out on uh, this evening. It's great to see so many faces in the room, so many familiar faces and new faces as well. So this is a really great turnout, and thanks everybody for taking some time out of your evening to be here. My name is Rex Linville. I'm with the Piedmont Environmental Council, and we are a locally based nonprofit organization that for the past 40 years has been working in our region to strengthen the community through community-based conservation. We do this through a diverse array of programs. We have land protection activities that have resulted in more than 350,000 acres of protected land by private landowners in the community. We work by, to connect urban residents with rural farmers through our Buy Fresh, Buy Local program. We work to restore native brook trout habitat in the headwater streams that flow out of Shenandoah National Park. We, and through advocacy work, and, good, and advocating for good planning at the local, regional, and statewide level. As a result of support from the Charlottesville Area Community Foundation, we are here tonight to kick off a new project that we are working on in partnership with the Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission. At its heart, this project is designed to improve quality of life for all residents and increase civic engagement in the city of Charlottesville and the surrounding urban core of Albemarle County. Interconnected bicycle and pedestrian corridors can serve as a shared civic space where people from our diverse communities come together for recreation and active transportation. Our region is defined by iconic cultural and natural resources such as the Charlottesville Downtown Mall, UVA Grounds, the Ravana River, Monticello, and the future Biscuit Run State Park that is actually within walking distance and from where you sit right now. We have an opportunity to build a world-class greenway system that connects these resources together in, in our community, in the places that people live, work, play, and shop. Tonight, you will hear from two amazing speakers who are prepared to share stories of success from around the nation and locally here in Virginia. Our hope is that these successes will inspire us to identify and move forward with a vision for bicycle and pedestrian connectivity that meets the needs of this place that we call home. The first speaker tonight is Chuck Flink, who I will introduce in one moment, and after him you will hear from Max Hep Buchanan, and I'll introduce Max after Chuck is done speaking. At the end of both presentations, we'll have some time for questions from the audience. And it, I don't know if people in the back, also at the end, we've got a, some wiki maps where you can um, sort of log in and, and help help us and help the Planning District Commission figure out where opportunities for connectivity are, and then there's a, another map exercise on a table in the back that you can engage in. And finally, as I said at the beginning, I'd like to thank you for taking some time out of your evening to be here tonight and participate in this process. Success in building the interconnected bike and pedestrian system will not be possible without your support and engagement. In fact, it will depend on you. It will depend on your advocacy. This meeting is the beginning of a process, so let's get started. And with that, I'd like to introduce Mr. Flink. Charles A. Flink, Chuck, is president of Greenways Incorporated, an international consulting firm based in Durham, North Carolina. He is wi widely regarded as one of America's leading greenway designers, having completed comprehensive greenway trail and open space plans for more than 270 communities in 37 states. He also has been a consultant to clients in Argentina, Belarus, Brazil, Canada, China, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Japan. I think it is safe to say that nobody has worked on more greenways than Chuck. Chuck is a fellow of the American Society of Landscape Architects Council of Fellows. He is co-author of two award-winning books, Greenways, A Guide to Planning, Design, and Development, and Trails for the 21st Century. 
Both have been translated into Chinese and are used as textbooks at the Peking University in Beijing. Chuck has been featured in national and international publications, including National Geographic, Landscape Architects, uh, Business Journal, uh, Landscape Architecture, Walking, American Planning, Southern Living, and American City County. Chuck graduated from North Carolina State University College of Design, currently serves as executive in residence there, and he also chairs the North Carolina State University Board of Visitors, served three consecutive terms as chairman of the Board of American Trails, and five terms of chairman of the Board of Trustees for the East Coast Greenway. And with that, I'd like a quick round of applause as we introduce Chuck. Thanks so much, Rex. Uh, just spent an amazing day here, and thanks to Rex and Peter for inviting me up here and uh, shepherding me around the community. And we had a really action-packed day, and I see some faces in the crowd that participated in our meetings. Uh, so Rex gave me this, this uh, incredible list of things that he wanted me to address in this very short presentation, and I'll do my best to, to cover his list. Uh, we'll bounce around a little bit from topic to topic, but there are a lot of key points that he wanted uh, me to address. Um, actually, this is a. I was in Charlottesville 20 years ago, which seems like forever ago. <laughs> and I think that a lot has happened in Charlottesville. But we were at the time, 20 years ago, talking about the introduction of the Trails and Greenways Master Plan. And so it's nice to come back. It's a beautiful community, and I've really enjoyed uh, the short visit. Um, I am a bit of a Greenway nerd because I've been in this business now for over 33, uh, 34 years, focusing exclusively on Greenway planning and design. <coughs> And so I, I wanted to start off with just a little bit uh, of a background on the subject of greenways. It's a concept that's been around for more than 160 years, and it started with Frederick Law Olmsted in Central Park uh, in New York in the 1850s. It's interesting to think back to that time, because that particular time in American history, there were no public spaces for the masses. The elite had access to gardens, and they had access to country estates. Uh, but in the cities and towns and villages that, that people grew up in, other than maybe in commons here or there, uh, there really was no dedicated uh, green space and parks. And so the very first of these was the development of Central Park. And that is why Charlesville says, if anybody deserves credit for the creation of the, of the Central Greenways, it's, 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 it's a critical homestead. And so Central Park was actually originally named Greensport, which was a very popular term at the time. And Greensward was all about bringing nature into the city. It was all about escaping the, the, the problems with urban life and creating space, creating sort of a set of green lines in, in the city. Um, but Olmsted was concerned with more than just bringing nature into the city. He was also concerned with democratic space, creating places that, in which the classes uh, basically melted away. And you welcome all people, irregardless uh, of their backgrounds, uh, and their status in, in, in society. And that's what Central Park really became, and that was the success of it. And it was so successful that other cities really wanted to copy it. And Olmsted saw the wisdom of really expanding the role that Central Park played in addressing issues of mental health and mental wellness and just the general health of the population. And uh, this is really borne out today uh, when we look at Central Park and the way it's used. And really, when we look at parks and greenways across the communities, uh, they really do address uh, the mental side 
uh, of city life and, and provide us relief when, when we really need it. The concept became very popular in Olmstead began to get other clients, uh, especially in the northeastern part of the United States. And one of his uh, next uh, clients was the, the city of Buffalo, New York, and they said, come up and do Central Park for Buffalo. And so Olmstead goes up and surveys uh, Buffalo at the time and says, well, there's really not a singular landscape that is large enough for me to recreate Central Park. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a series of parks and connect them with parkways, which was, again, a brand new concept. And that's really the foundation of greenways back then. So these long, skinny corridors that connected these parks together was Olmsted's version of parkways. Now, you have to understand, this is before the invention of the automobile. And so these, these parkways were really pedestrian corridors. They were places where people would ride horses. They were places where people would bike. And they would stroll. They were sort of strollways. And the Buffalo system of, of parkways, which would be called greenways today, is still intact to this day. And really served the needs of modern-day Buffalo uh, the, the way that they did back in the turn of the century when they first created And so that's really the foundation of greenways. But we're going to now zoom ahead 130 years uh, to the 1980s and look at what has been the modern American Greenway movement. We've accomplished a significant amount in 32 years. We have more than 50,000 miles of greenways and trails on the ground across America. That's the size, by the way, that's the equivalent of our interstate highways. And we've done it in, in less amount of time. The term greenway, I would, I would submit now, is pretty much ubiquitous. We find it all across America. It's no longer some sort of foreign term that people don't understand. People have really embraced it. Greenways are breathing life in the economies of many communities across America. And I submit that they really have become America's new mainstream. It's where we go and we slow down long enough that we're not in automobiles. And we're actually seeing people greeting each other, exchanging pleasantries. Um, they're really fascinating landscapes in that regard. Uh, it promotes healthier, more active lifestyles, and they represent, very importantly, an ethic of stewardship uh, in communities all across the, our, our country. And I mentioned they're ubiquitous. We find them in all the corners of American life, in all these different types of communities, like way, way up, almost on the Canadian border at Grand Forks, North Dakota. Uh, the High Line, which is very popular in New York City. The 606, which is a converted rails to trails project in Chicago. Atlanta's Beltline, which is one of the largest uh, public works projects in the United States today. The Razorback Regional Greenway in Northwest Arkansas, a place that a lot of people probably have never visited, but is, is worth, uh, worth a trip. The Cultural Trail in Indianapolis, uh, a fabulous uh, project that encircles the downtown. Swamp Rabbit Trail, with a really clever name and a spectacular project in Greenville, South Carolina, in the upstate area. The Mill River up in Stanford, Connecticut. The Schuylkill, which a lot of people have, have used in, in Philadelphia, and even all the way out to our national parks, a project that I was very uh, pleased to work on for 10 years, the Grand Canyon Greenway, which goes along the tops of the South Rim and the North Rim, and makes visitation to uh, one of our uh, best-known national parks that much better. So why do we plan for greenways? Why should we plan for a greenway system? Maybe why should Charlottesville, um, you know, follow through with Rex's notion. I think there's, that classically greenways were defined as sort of this pathway through the woods. Uh, and people thought of them as being extensions of park systems and just recreational corridors. But actually, when we get involved in greenway plans, we take a much deeper look at our communities. 
One of the things I noticed early on in my career when I was studying communities and planning was that we didn't really make a provision for greenway systems or green corridors or the way that we connect to resources in our community uh, through these community plans. Yes, we might have mapped agricultural land, uh, vacant land, forested land, uh, but there was really uh, nothing in our zoning codes or our comprehensive plans that really accounted for the development of greenways. And this is pretty consistent across the United States. My observation, I sort of turned into a quote and said, just as we shouldn't or wouldn't consider building a home without a set of blueprints, we shouldn't grow our communities without a greenway. We should have some idea of the, the kind of lands that we value, the kind of resources that we value, and we should be committed to connecting people uh, to these places, to these special lands. Uh, and here's a map uh, that just shows the opposite of what we saw in those prior diagrams of, of Portland, Oregon, which did a great job of looking at its streamways, looking at the ways in which uh, greenways could be interconnected without their, their community. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very rich landscape with a lot of challenges, like you face here in Charlottesville, uh, but it's added tremendous value to the quality of life uh, and the economic competitiveness of, competitiveness of Portland when they did this plan. So I wanted to walk you through uh, a traditional planning exercise that we do, and I picked the city of Allentown, Pennsylvania. It's probably similar in size to Charlottesville, um, but it might surprise you to know that when we go and do Greenway plans, we're, we look at a whole set of factors that goes way beyond their recreational potential. We look at the, at the makeup of the population, the demographics. Who can we best serve? Uh, with the Greenway strategy. Um, we definitely look at land use, and, it's, and as I mentioned, it's about connection. So where do people, where are people trying to go? The, the highest quality transportation trip that most of us are gonna engage in is to grab our car keys and go in our car. And then other transportation chips just don't match that quality experience. Can we create quality experience and quality trips um, uh, through Greenway plans? Well, we look at the issue of people that do have cars and people that don't have cars. In the case of Allentown, much of the downtown, um, which you'll see in, in some of the other maps, did not have access to cars. So how are they going to move around their community? They're going to move around their community primarily by biking and walking. And we map that. Where do we have pedestrian commuters? What is the, the, the landscape like for those commuters? How are they able to move around their community? Or even to a lesser extent, bicycle communities. So we're going well beyond the notion that these are recreation corridors. And Allentown had a really great history, but it dated almost 100 years prior uh, to community leaders and, and civic and business leaders setting up a parks and parkway system, essentially in the mold of uh, Frederick Olmsted. But that, that investment in that infrastructure stopped. And then they became a community that was really disconnected. So we went in and evaluated the existing parks and trails. We mapped out the service radius um, or how effective was that community in terms of connecting people uh, to the resources and connecting them to where they really wanted to go. We looked at some of the most popular destinations and you'll see that this is citizens identifying where they want to go, much like the exercise that Rex and Peter are asking you to participate in today. But the systems that were in place really didn't take people to where they wanted to go. So our framework, the concept that we've been working on for years and years is what we call hubs and spokes. And it's a conceptual diagram here 
that talks about where people are trying to go and what greenways can do, greenways and bikeways and trails to connect them to these places. So yes, it, it really is a bit about transportation, um, but it really goes beyond that in terms of its, its functional relationship to the community. But we apply that conceptual framework into our existing uh, sort of inputs uh, that we're getting from the public, and we map out a trail strategy. So in Allentown, quite honestly, while we were building on the heritage of parks and greenways, we were also adding into it bikeways, better sidewalks, uh, just an improved mobility uh, system, mobility infrastructure, uh, to, to really meet the needs of, of the citizens in the community. And so we really focused on what are the benefits of greenways. And I think in, its, in the heritage, you know, we obviously will start with the environmental benefits. But even those are, are probably broader than most people would think. In an era of climate change, we're focusing a lot on urban flooding and what can we do to mitigate the impacts of, of global climate change? What do we do about wildlife and how do we engage people uh, in environmental stewardship? So that becomes a very important part of what we're doing. Education, we use Greenway Corridors. We try to really program a lot of our Greenway Corridors uh, to touch of different segments of the population, and not just children, but also adults, give, giving us a chance to be better connected to those resources. Certainly mobility, and I think Max will drill in on this a little bit more, um, but making those connections so that there's an efficient way uh, for people to travel around their community. And Rex and Peter took me out into some of the corridors today to look at the ability uh, for this community to be more multimodal than and I think also, uh, Greenway's become this, this sort of mainstream, as I mentioned, a place where people like to gather, they can educate themselves about their community, they can become better connected with each other, and the fabulous landscapes of the community. I mentioned at lunch today that to me, Greenway's are, are about celebrating community, uh, about all the things that we love about the towns we live in. And it's it's really great uh, a way of, of making those connections. And then. Finally, and I want to spend a little bit more time on this, economic benefits. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the economy and, and ways in which greenways can benefit uh, communities. Uh, and it's really uh, pushed along by a theory that was launched a few years ago called the experience economy. How many of you are familiar with the experience economy? So it essentially says that goods and services, which is the traditional uh, sort of foundation of the economy, are no longer enough to foster economic growth and create jobs. That, that really, we're in a new era of economic development, and that is to realize additional revenue growth and increased employment. The staging of experiences, the participation of experiences, is becoming even more important. And the authors of the book like to, to, to basically say, look, we're in the midst of an experience economy. Um, and if you have any doubts that that exists, if you go out to an event, you know, many people are participating in, in social media to share that experience with others through Facebook, through Snapchat, through Twitter, whatever. And the strongest elements of the global economy today are the companies that really are part of this experience economy. Um, so things are changing and it's sweeping the globe and everybody's really caught up in it. And I think greenways are really part and parcel of this experience economy. They really, they really play into it. And one of the biggest driving forces behind this is, is millennials, which is the second largest uh, population group in the United States. And their interests are very different from uh, their fathers and mothers and their grandfathers and grandmothers in terms of 
what it is they're trying to invest in. And more millennials are interested in investing in experiences than traditional things like purchasing homes or purchasing cars. Um, and so the economy begins to change. And actually, uh, Richard Florida sort of predicted this back in 2002 when he said place is becoming the central organizing unit of economy and society. And so the experience of place is really important. And you know, I don't think it's a surprise to you, or, or you wouldn't even disagree, that Charlottesville is a very, very strong uh, place. It's got a very strong experience of place. It's a unique community uh, in the United States. When we look at how that translates economically, we have to understand that, that tourism is either the first or second or third largest uh, economic factor in almost every state in America. Some of this information is a little bit dated. You can probably get more updated information today. But in Virginia, in basically 2011 numbers, uh, tourism generated $30.4 billion in economic impact in the state of Virginia which includes $20 billion in visitor spending, providing you know, $1.3 billion in local uh, tax revenues. Now, we spent some time talking about this because we imagined the distances that it would take to connect the downtown out to Monticello or the downtown out to the UVA campus or other popular destinations. The distances are not great. Um, those corridors are actually pretty easy conceptually to think about uh, being developed into a greenway system and being part of a tourist-based economy uh, that could thrive. Look at the number of people that are employed by tourism in Virginia, 207,000 people. And it's the fifth largest employer in Virginia, and Virginia ranks 10th in the nation uh, in tourist economy. When we think of just the outdoor economy itself, it's, it's really enormous. It's, it's quite large. It's one of the largest employers in the nation. It contributes one of the largest amounts uh, to, to to our taxes, our tax base in our country. So to build a greenway system that really takes advantage of your outdoors uh, and to build on all the wonderful destinations and connections that are possible here in Virginia is to build on your economy. It's to broaden your economy and to make it uh, work for you in a better way. Even something as simple as birding. How many of you are birders? Yeah, so there's 47 million of you in the nation. And you're spending around $35 billion on birding, which is, which is really pretty amazing. I was up in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and I was working on this greenway, and we started talking about building a greenway, and they're on the North American Flyway, and they had no idea that this was the kind of economic force that they were completely ignoring. But the greenway gave them an opportunity to take advantage of that, and they built a greenway that really catered to birding. Um, and even the bicycle industry, which is, these, are, these numbers go back a little ways, but contributing enormous amounts of economic value uh, into our economy, um, supporting over a million jobs, generating $17 billion in federal, state, and local taxes. Uh, in tourism, $47 billion annually. Um, in North Carolina, we studied the impact of tourism on the Outer Banks. Our, our Department of Transportation did this study. They made a one-time investment of $6 million in building a bike path along the Outer Banks. And they went down and measured its impact. And, they, and their study determined that annually it was returning $60 million in economic benefit to the state of North Carolina, employing 1,400 people in the Outer Banks region. So this is pretty good return on investment. And this is the kind of economic benefits uh, that are possible for really communities all across 
of the nation. Rex asked me to speak to, to public engagement because he realizes that in this community, it's really important. And I want to share with you a project that I'm working on right now. It's in Memphis, Tennessee. This is a 25-mile urban greenway. We have $25 million of private money involved in this greenway. And we use that $25 million of private investment to leverage $25 million of public investment. So we have a $50 million project. Um, and I'm going to sh show you just the, the opening phase of the greenway, which is right here uh, down the river. This is the first phase that we've opened. This has been a project that's been on the books for over 30 years, but they couldn't really move it off Den Center. And they contacted me in, in 2014 and said, would you come here and work with us to do this, this plan? And I said, sure. And I said, share with me the public engagement that you've done so far in the city of Memphis. And they said, we haven't done any public engagement. We don't want to do any public engagement. We don't want to know what our residents have to think about this greenway. We think it's going to be very controversial. And I said, well, we're going to do, but we're going to do public engagement. And so we spent nine months, uh, you know, spent a lot of money and a lot of time, going out and doing a whole series of meetings, including meeting with stakeholder groups, all kinds of stakeholder groups, whether they be elected officials or business leaders, uh, really asking them questions about their interest in greenways and their support uh, for this in their community. We did community meetings. We, we arced through, this, this greenway arced through uh, minority communities in the north end of Memphis. And we went into these smart minority communities. We were one of the first groups to go in there and start asking them questions and really getting their input and their feedback. We went into community churches and we talked with them. We went to community meetings and talked with them. So we did a really, really deep dive um, in terms of trying to connect. And some of these meetings were meetings that we scheduled, but oftentimes, we went to places where people already had meetings so we could engage with them. We did other community meetings directly in some of these African-American neighborhoods uh, to really get a sense of how could we make the Greenway relevant uh, to the lives of residents uh, in these areas. We held a series of open houses in which we sort of put it out there and said, come to us. Those were the worst attended meetings that we had. Um, as we, we, we got very small attendance, but we got the passionate people. Either you were for this or you were against it, and you came out to our open house meetings. But we did them all across the city. Uh, and we recorded all of the, the results of these meetings and made a report available. Our funders were really uh, grateful that we did this, our private sector funders. They really wanted us to connect with the community in a meaningful way. Um, and we did, and we learned a lot. Uh, we used uh, interesting technology. This is called a mobile porch. And that person is up there filling out the survey on an iPad. And this thing is, a, is on a flatbed truck and it's drug around from neighborhood to neighborhood. And we have people come out. So we're bringing the meeting to them. Um, so we looked at just really inventive ways of doing this. And then we held a series of events. I talked about celebrating community. Well, we, we really wanted to celebrate community. And so we staged a series of events in which we invited people to come out and the landscapes are not completely landscapes, uh, but we did that. This is, a, this is one of the events where I actually had a 100% attendance record, even though I don't live in Memphis. This was Drink a Beer, Save a River. So we had good attendance at those events in different parts of the community. And then we did groundbreaking ceremonies. Uh, we did tree planting ceremonies as part of that. We did a ceremony to celebrate the fact that we got a National Disaster Resiliency Grant. Uh, we worked with a really great media engagement team, Archer Malmo. We went on the local PBS channel. We did a one-hour uh, sort of 
uh, presentation there about the Greenway, and we did other kinds of presentations throughout the community. And they even held a soiree to celebrate the Greenway uh, and raise additional funds and raise interests. We have a website that's dedicated to it. We have a Facebook page that's dedicated to it. Um, and we also, in this particular community of Memphis, we didn't do it, but in Allentown, we translated all of our information into Spanish uh, so that we're really engaging uh, the Hispanic community in, in Allentown. Uh, what I'd like to share with you is, is a video. This, this was shot uh, two weeks ago. This was the very first grand opening event for our Greenway, and we really believe it's about celebrating uh, the, the community and celebrating the landscape. Now, this site that you're going to see in this video was an unofficial sort of dumping ground. We hauled tons and tons of trash out of here. It was downtown. It was an neglected piece of land. It's part of the Greenway. But I think it really uh, shows the, the fruits of our engagement efforts, that we had about 750 people that came out uh, for this dedication ceremony. So I'm going to play the video for you. Good morning, Harbor Town. What a beautiful day we have for our celebration. On behalf of our board and our staff, we want to welcome you all out here today for this celebration, for this grand opening of the newest segment of the Wolf River Greenway Trail. We want to get spaces, places, and people. For decades, this was an illegal dumping site, but this area now, this park-like setting, which is part of the Wolf River Greenway Trail, is open to the public, hikers, bikers, walkers, anyone that wants to enjoy the great outdoors. The 120 acres that we're dedicated to is the summer store right here used to grow automobiles and tires and couches. Today, when you go down this corridor of opportunity, we're now growing trails and trees, picnic tables, benches, and miles of wide paved walkways. 26 miles using underutilized land and connecting neighborhoods. Think for a moment of everything that has taken place along this riverfront area and the environment seeking into Shelby County. You realize that there is a movement that's taking place in our community to really preserve and protect and promote this great county. But most importantly, creating connections. Creating connections of people and communities. When we create those connections, we'll also create opportunities for economic development. When you came in, you were given a shoestring, and you tied it up over here. Those shoestrings symbolize the connections that we're making as we go out the Greenway. So please do not think about this as a 12-foot-wide paved hiking or biking path. Think about it as creating connections in our community. One of the great things about the Wolf River Greenway is that we are making those connections and we're working with homeowners associations. We're working with landowners. We're assembling the quarter from scratch. It doesn't exist. So we're having to do a lot of negotiation. And sometimes those negotiations are really difficult because people don't quite understand why the Greenway has to run right here. Why can't it run over there? You know, why does it run through our neighborhood or run through my lots or whatever? So uh, that's part of the challenge of building these systems. But when we're able to do events like this, we're able to show people the value of being connected in their community. And we're very fortunate uh, that so many folks in, in Memphis are really cooperating. Uh, now, uh, building greenways, 
there's not a great amount of mystery to it, but we talked about this at lunch today. To me, it really comes down to commitment. Is your community committed to the idea of completing the interconnected Greenway system? Certainly, in our plan for Allentown, we went through with Allentown uh, sort of a checklist of things that they had to do in order to be successful with their Greenway. Certainly, funding and public support, the right-of-way issue, uh, building functional segments, and, and looking at where we had low-hanging fruit and where we could get started with Greenways. Uh, but we really laid out uh, the system, and we broke the system down into uh, bite-sized chunks and corridors that could be developed one at a time. And this is the same process that I would recommend. I mean, I certainly get the sense, coming here to Charlottesville, that there is ample number of plans. Uh, but, the, but the problem is translating those plans into action and actually getting out and building Greenways. And the way that we, that we propose doing it in Allentown, and actually, this is the strategy we use all across uh, the United States when we're, when we're implementing green plans is to really uh, pull the system apart and talk about it as a series of corridors that are designed to make those connections. What are the challenges that you're going to face in making those connections? And so it, it can be really very, very detailed plans. And as I walk riding around with Peter and Rex today, that's what's on my mind, is taking these individual corridors, really understanding the details of, of how they would be transformed into Greenway corridors, and then working with people to make that happen. Um, I also said at lunch today, look, this is not going to be easy. You're, you're going to face a lot of opposition. You're going to face people who don't understand why you're doing this, why they should be involved, why their land has to be committed to this. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the experience that we have all across America is that these are very, very positive uh, facilities and positive resources. Uh, and it may help to use these kinds of techniques, photo simulation, to kind of show what you need, how, how transformation is going to happen, how you're going to make these connections happen uh, in different parts of your community. Um, and so those are really good strategies to employ. Um, and I, I know that multi-jurisdictional coordination is an issue. In fact, 20 years ago, before actually before I came uh, to Charlottesville, we completed the Roanoke Valley Greenway Plan. And when we started our work in Roanoke Valley, we were told by the PDC there, Chuck, nobody in the valley gets along. All the towns hate each other. They don't want to work together. Nobody wants to cooperate. And so we were sort of the guinea pig in cooperation. Um, and I think that after the plan was done and people realized that, that they weren't their own you know, worst enemies or their enemies weren't around, you know, they began a process of really working together on lots of things. They had a coordinated transportation system, coordinated water and sewer plans, uh, all kinds of things happen. But if you go into the Roanoke Valley today, you're going to be able to use these really fabulous greenways that have taken place in the last 20 years. And I think that Roanoke would conclude that this has really added a lot of value uh, to their area. So I wanted to talk a little bit about a project I finished out in Northwest Arkansas. It's a two-county region. Again, similar kind of setup. Six communities that never really worked together on anything. And we walk into town, we do have the backing of the Walton Family Foundation, uh, and we start working on this regional Greenway plan. We didn't have any right-of-way, we didn't even have a corridor. We had to invent the whole thing uh, in our planning process. And so the regional teamwork was critical. These are the maps, these are the maps that we assembled. I mean, you can tell, I mean, the maps don't even, aren't even meant to go together because they're not the same kind of data. They're different sets of data, but we cobbled this thing together. There were 
uh, lots of different properties that we had to, to bring in the fold. We did a little bit more sophisticated level of corridor planning and identifying where problems were going to be and how those problems seemed to be resolved through design development. Um, we were very fortunate. Uh, the Family Foundation came to us and said, you know, how would you guys fund this? And we listed about 36 different ways of funding the Greenland system. And at the time, there was this program called TIGER, which is Transportation Investment Generating Economic Recovery. It's part of Obama's stimulus package. And this was in round two. And we suggested they might want to apply for that funding. And we did, and we were we were one of a thousand applications in the United States, we were one of 42 capital loans that took place. So we got we applied for 22 million, we received 15 million, and the Walton Family Foundation matched us dollar for dollar. It was the only tiger grant that had a dollar for dollar match in the United States. And we set about building this community greenway system. People have asked me, why did the Walton Family Foundation do this? And there were actually two reasons that they felt it was important to do this and spend private money to match public money. First was to address public health and wellness concerns in their community. They knew that a healthy population was a productive population. They wanted to do their part to be a part of that. And second, they felt like they needed to be globally competitive economically. And they felt that a greenway was one of the best ways to achieve that. Very, very low amount of investment, a very, very high return on that investment. Um, so we set about to build this, this federally funded and non-federally funded greenway of 36 miles. Um, and one of the things that was really critical about this in the building of the greenway was that we wanted to be context sensitive. We were sometimes along creeks and rivers uh, here. We were between malls, shopping centers. Here's Mercy Hospital, which played a role in our greenway planning efforts. But it was really all about these connections. We were going to design, and the Walton Family Foundation was insistent that we design a world-class greenway. So we weren't going to accept sidewalks along trails, or along roads, as being part of a world-class system. It had to be off-road. It had to be, you know, the best design standards that we could come up with um, in the development of the project. Uh, and as I mentioned, right-of-way acquisition was a key. So we had 129 property owners that we had to negotiate with, all of them with a very unique and different story. And it was my job to, to negotiate with all of them, with, with a right-of-way, a team of right-of-way specialists. And we did. And I said at, at the dedication ceremony that the true um, uh, sort of hero of this entire project of 129 property owners that allowed us uh, to successfully negotiate easements with them. Um, and we did it in a way that was really fair to all property owners. We followed the Uniform uh, Federal Relocation Act uh, in terms of uh, dealing with property owners. I highlight this one because I literally stood on the back deck of this homeowner's property and agreed with them that the original routing of the Greenway was much, much too impactful to their daily lives. Um, the husband and wife like to sit out and have a cup of coffee on their back deck in the morning and they just felt like watching a whole parade of people come by was just going to be more than they really wanted to, to bite off. But we proposed the red line as an alternate route. It wasn't the most efficient route of travel, but it became one of the most interesting routes of travel at the end, and we were successful in negotiating with them. So this is just one story, but there were many, many more of those. And we paid fair market value for the real estate. Um, so everybody felt like they came out as a winner in the end. Mercy Hospital wound up uh, giving us a, a, a couple acre uh, tract of land right on their property because they felt like they wanted to be 
part of this new health and wellness initiative in Northwest Arkansas, they are, they're, the doctors would now be writing prescriptions for patients to go out and park at the Mercy Hospital trailhead and walk a, a circuitous route around the hospital as part of their wellness program to address things like hypertension, high blood pressure, um, just be, becoming less sedentary and more active. Um, and that active lifestyle was a big part of what we did. We branded the project. We had that discussion today about branding this, to make this really part of the community. And we developed a branding and wayfinding and science program that's deployed uh, across the community. So again, these, this is a really great example of how to get that multi-jurisdictional cooperation and build a greenway that's really going to have lasting value in your community. What was really fun was to celebrate the success. And we celebrated it at every opportunity. We, we just dreamt up all kinds of events that would really celebrate the development of the greenway as we were building it. And one of the really great events was done by a, a local foundation, the Endeavor Foundation. They got with all the local school children and created this thing called Energized Northwest Arkansas. And it was targeted at school kids uh, that would get out of their bikes and ride the Greenway, uh, not only for health and wellness, but also uh, as a way of, of getting to and from school. And today we have walking school buses now that replace regular school buses. The Bentonville School District says they're saving over a million dollars a year in fuel costs because the Greenway is on the ground they're not having to service as many kids by bus. Uh, so we had our grand opening in, in May of 2015. About six years after we began, more than 1,000 people came out and celebrated the development of the Greenway. And the mayors, each of the six mayors were up there, basically competing for who had more out-of-state tourists on their section of the Greenway, which was a really good end result uh, for, uh, for the project. Now, Rex also said, you know, Chuck, are, are there downsides to this? Are there things that we should be careful about as we're looking to plan and implement a community greenway system? And, I, you know, I think there's a couple of things that, that you should consider and you should take into account, um, especially as we think about being inclusionary and servicing all uh, aspects of, of our community and, our, and the populations of our community. There's this sort of theory going around right now, are these, are these urban parks and greenways green walls or are they green magnets? And to be honest, I'm not sure that they're really either, but it's interesting research. Um, and I've had some experience with this. I went down to Miami, Florida in 1998 uh, to work on the Miami River Greenway. It was an interesting story because the citizens of Miami did not realize there was a river in their downtown, number one. <laughs> Secondly, they didn't realize the city was named after the river. Um, and that the fact of uh, the matter was the river was named after the native populations that, that lived along the riverbanks, the Mianis. So that was a really interesting educational process we went through. But as I started working on this, the Miami Herald contacted me one day and said, why would you build a greenway on you know, the, the biggest liability that we have in our community? I mean, it's a cesspool. There's drug deals going down. There's all kinds of crime. Sylvester Stallone's down there shooting an action movie, which he's blowing up after. Um, so, but we got going and we had a lot of success. And in fact, the success has been phenomenal. So in a, in a period of about 10 years, we went from a landscape that nobody thought we should be on, building an urban greenway, to a landscape that was attracting billions, billions of dollars in private sector investment. And today is, is one of the most revered waterfront landscapes anywhere in the world. Uh, the downside of this is the impact on the adjacent neighborhoods. Little Havana. Uh, which has been a very, very stable population for, for many, many years. And actually, I was called back in by the city and worked with uh, AECOM, which was then EDAW, 
to look at gentrification and the, and the effect that the river, the, all the economic success of the river was having on, on this neighborhood. And gentrification, um, uh, environmental justice, the issues of affordable housing are very serious concerns in our urban areas. Are they being caused by greenways? I'm not sure that I would reach that conclusion, but definitely urban areas are becoming more popular. More people are moving back into our cities and our towns because they really enjoy a more compact lifestyle and one that doesn't involve depending on the automobile so much. We're seeing the same effect now with the Atlanta Beltline. The Atlanta Beltline is really struggling uh, with the affordable housing promises that they made at the outset. And some of that is just the way the finances are working, but they definitely need to make a better effort in meeting the objectives of affordable housing as we build out the Atlanta Beltline. The idea isn't to push people out. The idea is to enhance the quality of life for all people. And it takes a lot of effort. It's, not, it's a very complicated uh, situation. The 606 in Chicago, which is being studied by a friend of mine at NC State, Lincoln Larson, is experiencing the same thing. Here in this community, we have really three different types of neighborhoods um, that have coexisted for years along the abandoned rail line. And now here comes uh, the, the Greenway the Trail and it's creating this green wall, green magnet sort of dynamics. So I would say to you that as you go into this, you do need to be very conscious and work really hard to make sure that you're not unintentionally uh, negatively impacting uh, populations uh, that should benefit uh, from greenway design and development. Uh, and I, it, it can be done, but it, but it takes effort. It takes, it takes financial support, uh, and it's not something that you can just leave to market forces. There is a project right now, and I, I hesitate to say a lot about it because it's in the planning and design phase, but going into it, the 11th Street Bridge Park in Washington, D.C., on the Anacostia River, is a project that's designed to bridge more than its physical landscape. It's designed to bridge this issue of affordable housing and gentrification and uh, eco-development. So it's one to, to keep an eye on. Um, and in fact, at NC State, we're going to actually have a conference that focuses on this subject altogether. If you're interested in attending, it'll be March 15th in 2018. Sort of taking on that whole issue. So let me close out by just talking about um, the, 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 the real benefit, the sort of the bottom line for Greenways here in Charlottesville. Um, it's such an impressive community. I really enjoy having a chance to get out and see more of it. And I think that, that what Greenways are all about for this community is, is really the connection. Uh, connecting you to this, the fantastic landscape that you live in, all the incredible history that's part of this community, and connecting you to one another. Um, that's the power of Greenways. And that's why I really believe that they're sort of America's new Main Street. Uh, there are ways in which we can talk about environmental stewardship, and while at the same time, talking about ways in which we transport ourselves uh, throughout our community, um, and addressing critical issues of public health and wellness. So this really fulfills the promise that Olmsted saw more than 160 years ago of, of continuing uh, to focus on urban life and, 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 and also rural life as well. Uh, how do we create more value? How do we uh, maximize uh, the benefits so that everybody has a chance to enjoy these wonderful landscapes that we live in. Um, I've been a part of this for, for a long time, and, and I've seen a lot of opposition, I've seen a lot of concerns, I've seen a lot of people that felt like maybe this wasn't the right step. Uh, in working through most of those problems, uh, I can tell you that 
most of the vast majority of projects. In fact, I was asked the other day, what about the failures? And I, I really struggle for me to talk about projects that haven't succeeded. But a lot of it's because of the foundation they're built on. And I think you have all the ingredients here to build that foundation. I started with Charles Little's talking about uh, the uh, Frederick Law Olmsted and the relevance of him sort of instigating the Greenland movement, and I'll end with it. Charles had this fabulous, very simple quote. Uh, to build a, green, a greenway is to build a community. You have a strong community. You have a very um, uh, admirable community. And I think greenways can do nothing uh, but enhance all the aspects of your community. And uh, certainly put Charlottesville in a position uh, where it's going to grow successfully uh, in the rest of the country. So thank you very much, and I'll turn it back to Rex. Uh, thank you. A lot to think about. We've been uh, keeping Chuck busy. He landed uh, in Charlottesville last night, and we instantly took him out to dinner with some folks to talk to, and... We had a breakfast meeting set up for him and a lunch meeting with uh, city and county planning staff uh, today, and then took him on a Greenway tour, and then we gave him about a two-hour break before he was supposed to report back here. So thank you for your time and energy and uh, this, this presentation and giving so much of, uh, of yourself to us for this. It's, it's, it's very helpful. Next, I have the pleasure, uh, somebody a little bit closer to home, I'm going to introduce Max Hep Buchanan, who loves living in Richmond, though he is not a Virginia native. He grew up in Seattle and attended the University of Washington for far too many years, he says, where he earned his master's degree in urban planning and design and public administration. Uh, he moved to Richmond in March of 2013 to direct the Bike Walk RVA program for sports backers, which is Richmond's active living nonprofit organization. In addition to advocating for bike and walking infrastructure throughout the region, he also serves on the city's planning commission and safe and healthy streets commission. He has two small boys who spend a lot of time riding bikes and hiking with their dad, whether they like it or not. <laughs> and with that, I'll turn it over to Max. Okay. Get myself situated. Well, I have the uh, fortune or misfortune of following Chuck. That was great. Um, I'm going to tell a little bit more of a story. Uh, it's a story about advocacy in a county called Chesterfield County, not far from here. Uh, we're about a mile down the road. Um, sorry, an hour down the road. <laughs> You'd probably know a lot about it if it was a mile down the road. Uh, before I get started, I just want to get a quick sense of who is in the room tonight. Um, are there professional urban planners? Please raise your hand. Fair amount of you. What about policy people? Are there elected officials here? Great. What about advocates? I'm hoping everybody raises their hand. Um, as Rex said, this is something that this endeavor can't be done without advocates. Advocates, it takes all of you. Um, this sounds like the beginning of a great journey, and I'm hoping that what I tell you uh, tonight is germane to what you're going through. Uh, so just a little bit about uh, Chesterfield. Um, it's a 446-square-mile uh, locality. 
uh, has a population of about 337,000, which makes it the fifth largest county population in the Commonwealth. Um, as you can see, most of the development has occurred in the uh, sort of northeast section of, of the county, which means that a lot of the county has very suburban feel to it, um, and a lot of the county has a very rural feel to it. And that's, that's pretty relevant to uh, what we're going to talk about. Um, the, the county decided to go through a bikeways and trails plan process, which was a multi-year effort, um, and that's the story that I'm going to tell. Uh, a little bit about the demographics. Um, it's, most, it's mostly white, about 70% white. That's been changing uh, since about the year 2000. The fastest growing population in the county uh, are Hispanic or Latino populations. And according to the American Community Survey, there's about 3% of households that do not have a car at home. And a lot of those folks are, it's, it's concentrated poverty. They're generally concentrated along certain corridors. One of them is called the uh, Jefferson Davis Corridor. 3% of households that don't have a car actually translates to a big chunk of the population that doesn't drive for one reason or another. They either don't have the car at home, they're too young, they're not mentally or physically able, they've had their license suspended for some reason, but no matter how you slice it, they're, they're not driving for transportation and there's basically no transit service in Chesterfield County. So a lot of folks rely on biking and walking um, and that transportation choice was a big motivator for this plan. So the southern and western portions of the county generally look like this. Uh, there's a lot of active farms, there's stands of pine trees and, and pretty narrow rural roads, very little paved shoulder. So a lot of the county is not even a great place uh, to bicycle as it is. It's pretty dangerous and a lot of high-speed traffic. Uh, the other sections of the county look like this, uh, subdivisions, strip shopping centers, divided highways. So you get a lot more traffic volume, you still have the high speeds generally not a very hospitable place for biking and walking. Very little sidewalks as well. Um, so that's a bit of background just on the county itself. Uh, a little bit of background on my organization. Uh, Sportsbackers is the organization that I work for. Um, as Rex said, it's our region's active living nonprofit group. Uh, we've been around for about 25 years. We have about 25 or 30 staff, uh, kind of depending on the, on the year or the time of year. Um, in 2012, Sportsbackers went through a uh, strategic planning process. Um, traditionally, they had brought, we had brought um, sporting events to town. After a while, we started to own and operate our own events. So we own and operate the Richmond Marathon. We have a warehouse full of marathon stuff start structures, barricade, everything that you need to basically put on a race. Um, people were doing training teams. Everyone was getting real active and fit, but there was a big pay-to-play model there. And in 2012, as we updated our strategic plan, we decided that uh, what was the most valuable thing that we did was bring active living opportunities to everybody in the region, not just tourists or visitors, but everyone who lived there. And in order to do that, you need infrastructure that supports walking and biking for transportation so that people can go to work or go to the store, what have you. I don't need to explain that to you all. You all probably know that. We didn't quite know that at the time. Um, and so BikeWalk RVA was started, which uh, I was the first hire. Uh, I moved out here from Seattle, and since then I've hired 
um, several more staff. Our general purpose is to get infrastructure built. Um, we don't do a ton of the education and encouragement and um, safety training type stuff. Um, there's other groups that, that do a lot of that. We do advocacy, we do a lot of political advocacy, we help localities identify funding sources, we build a grassroots community that advocates for those funding sources, um, and uh, I'd say like bike month, which is May, is kind of our one opportunity for us to really sort of celebrate those big wins and, and make, um, make a month-long celebration of, of biking and walking. Uh, one of the first things that um, we did when I came to town was we organized a um, bus tour to Washington, D.C. for 50 uh, elected officials, transportation and planning staff, fellow advocates. I know there's a couple people in the room who are actually on that trip back in 2013. Um, and the purpose was to show folks who, especially elected officials, um, and, and locality staff who might not have seen um, the great uh, infrastructure of Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia, sort of what that looks like. So we spent a day, we went up and back in the same day, we spent a lot of time biking and walking um, on, on uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, in, um, in Arlington County, uh, places like that. We met with elected officials. Does anybody remember this gentleman standing on the Capitol stairs? Eric Cantor. Um, so, and he actually spoke very well uh, about biking and walking infrastructure. We also met with Tim Warner, um, Tim Kane, and Mark Warner. Uh, and there were, the reason I'm telling you all this is because there were a couple, more than a couple of people who were on the trip that were very pivotal to uh, where we went from there. Um, the woman that you're looking at there is Heather Barrar. She is a planner for the county of Chesterfield, and the gentleman peering behind her is Stuart Connick. He's, he is in the Parks and Recreation Department. These two folks became the driving force behind the Bikeways and Trails plan in Chesterfield County, largely at the direction of these two people, uh, Dorothy Jekyll and Steve Ellswick, who um, are on the Board of Supervisors. And after we spent the whole day um, biking and walking, we got back and they said, we want a plan for infrastructure in Chesterfield County. At the time, Chesterfield County had uh, a comprehensive plan with basically two chapters uh, that dealt with biking and walking, but not very well. Um, one was a linear park and trail facilities map sort of big sweeping recommendations. Let's put a linear park here. And then there was a bikeways plan that looked at roads, but they were two separate things. None of this stuff was shovel ready. There was no funding mechanism behind any of it. And so we were tasked with uh, creating a new chapter of the comprehensive plan called the bikeways and trails chapter. And we were going to merge all of this. We were going to make it implementable. We were going to put action items in there. We were going to adopt policies that required developers to help pay for some of this infrastructure and stuff like that. So uh, we started by looking at other localities in Virginia um, that have done this type of stuff. We went to Roanoke Valley. We went to Virginia Beach. We went to Fairfax County. 
And uh, the team that was assembled was uh, Heather, who I mentioned, who was in the planning department, Stuart from the Parks and Rec department, uh, transportation staff, and then myself as sort of uh, outside technical expertise. And we did the public engagement song and dance that Chuck talked about. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we did open houses, we did surveys, uh, we had a lot of planners pointing at maps and things like that. For Chesterfield, uh, they actually reached a lot of people. Chesterfield is not traditionally known as the most public engaging county in Virginia um, or in the Richmond region, but it was a it was a hot topic. People got really interested, and um, so did the opposition, which is kind of where we're going to go from here. That's, those people aren't actually Chesterfieldians. Um, I stole that from the internet. But they look just like them in real life. Uh, so we thought, you know, we thought we were doing pretty good. We had hosted all these meetings and stuff like that. Um, there were a few folks that showed up in opposition to the meetings, but, it, you know, you get a few. Um, turns out behind the scenes they were getting organized and they were starting to make the, the calls and emails that gave our elected officials pause. Um, and so we, we needed to figure out what to do. Um, I kind of transitioned from a technical expertise on the project team to just straight up advocate. I put my advocate hat on, um, I, I got off the team and I said, we're gonna build the grassroots support needed in the county to get this plan adopted. Um, so that's sort of the second half of the story. Uh, a lot of the folks that were showing up to the public meetings looked like this gentleman. Um, they, they were showing up in Lycra. They were generally, you know, um, older demographic white people. Um, and if this is who uh, was going to be our messenger, probably wasn't going to resonate real well. That's the only animation I have, but I kind of like that. Um, that, that guy is not a caricature. That is actually from the Chesterfield Tea Party website. Um, the Tea Party started to um, seriously organize in, in opposition to uh, what we were trying to do. And so when I asked earlier about like who's in the room, that matters a lot because roles matter. Um, advocates play an important role of creating political space for the staff to basically do their job. Um, you, can make, you can create plans. You can do public engagement, but as the opposition starts to show up and, and starts to try and influence the elected officials, you need to bring people to the table who aren't your traditional messengers. Um, they need to talk to the elected officials as well, and you need to create paint a, a big a bigger picture um, than the than the typical advocate that shows up. So uh, we snapped to action and we hosted a advocacy academy, which is something that we do usually about twice a year. Um, but this was a sort of a rapid response academy um, just focused on Chesterfield. And so we, we had enough time, but it was rushed. We did an eight-week uh, program where we taught people how to actually write a letter to the editor, um, how, to deal, how to deal with the media, how to testify at a public hearing, uh, how to just generally set goals, how to recruit people uh, to the cause, things like that. We, that we, you know, we would do role playing and stuff like that. We met every once a week, every week for, for eight weeks, um, and sort of built this core team of, of advocates. But that wasn't, 
enough. We really had to change the, the public narrative as well. What was happening in the media was not the story that we wanted to tell um, because it was like cyclists versus the Tea Party, and that's, that wasn't going to be the winning story in the end. So uh, we, we went out to the, the, the areas of concentrated poverty, um, and we talked to folks walking in the goat paths on the streets. Um, we went to trailer parks along the Jefferson Davis Highway, and we started to document their stories. And so uh, I'm going to read, in case you can't read this, this is a quote from uh, Maria Camino, who is a single mother of three. She lives in a mobile home park along the Jefferson Davis Highway. Um, she is of Hispanic origin, which, like I said, is one of the fastest growing populations in Chesterfield County. She says, the road is nearly impossible to cross during high traffic hours. I rarely let my children walk with me. You just can't cross the street. You have to run. And on the other side of the street is their community center. And that's basically the only place they have for free recreation opportunities. There's a playground there, and then there's some, some, some programs that are held out of there. But they can't cross the street to get there. So we wanted to tell their story. We also wanted to tell the story of folks that live along the high-speed roads, divided highways and such, um, that are generally service, service sector jobs. You have grocery stores, you have gyms, all of which serve people that drive, but the people who work there, a lot of them have to, have to uh, bike or walk to work because they don't have the transportation options. Um, so Leandre, who works at uh, UFIT Gym, said, not many people walk or bike around here, but I think more people would if there wasn't traffic zooming by at 60 miles per hour. If people could feel more protected, I think that would change. We need sidewalks, and we need them soon. We also juxtaposed some of these quotes with um, startling statistics, such as sidewalks in African-American neighborhoods are 38 times more likely to be of low quality. So this is what a... This is what a typical um, road in Chesterfield looks like. I'm sure you have roads out here that are very similar. Um, this is the story that the existing condition that we wanted to tell. And this is the story that we wanted to tell. This is, we wanted to say this is what it could be like. It doesn't have to be this way. It can be this way, and it can serve everybody. And Chuck nailed that, so I'm not going to continue on with that. Um, we also had to change some of our, our tactics. Um, as an advocacy organization. Uh, so we did, you know, kind of a traditional tactic is you do an electronic petition, right? We, like we get, I don't know how many of those per week these days. Um, but there's a lot of folks that don't have the means to sign an electronic peti petition. So we went to food banks and we talked to people who were waiting in line for food and we got them to sign the petitions. Um, there were a series of public hearings uh, where the, you know, the only people that were really showing up were the people that had the means to do that. And so we actually transported folks from the densely populated low-income areas to the public hearings um, so that they could testify. In the end, uh, our final petition count was about 1,200 signatures. Um, a lot of them were signed in person um, by people who, who weren't using sort of the form email uh, type device um, the Tea Party also had their own petition of, of about two or 300. We sent our packet to every media outlet in the region that was covering the bikeways and trails plan so that they could see firsthand. These are the folks that are signing it. Um, 
and basically see that our, our numbers were bigger. Not to show off, but um, and it got us the it got us the media attention that we wanted. Um, the Richmond Times Dispatch, which is the largest paper in the region, did a, a front page uh, cover story about the poverty along the Jefferson Davis Highway and the folks that are forced to walk and bike in pretty unsafe conditions. Um, so just to, I'll just read the the excerpt from the from the story. On November 18th, the Board of Supervisors will hold a public hearing on a $360 million countywide bike and trails plan. I'm going to pause right there because they say $360 million, but it's a plan. A plan doesn't cost $360 million. Um, The general estimate of what it would take to build out the entire plan over 30, 40 years was $360 million. Um, The Tea Party took that and ran with it and said it was a billion-dollar plan. Anyway, some critics have called the plan a progressive entitlement and biking a privileged activity. To residents living along Jeff Davis with no means of transportation, like Marvin Cherry, it's a matter of survival. Cherry said he would get himself a bike, but without sidewalks and trails, he considers it too dangerous to ride on. Ain't no way to ride a bike here. The roads are not safe for that, he said. This is Chesterfield. I think they could do a lot better with the transportation because many people can't afford a car. So that came out 11 days before the final public hearing of the Bikeways and Trails plan. And on November 17th, um, 2015, we had 43 people show up uh, to testify in support, including four children. Um, We distributed uh, neon um, wristbands outside of the public hearing so that other supporters could identify another supporter and there could be some camaraderie. We helped coordinate talking points. Um, We made sure that you didn't have like five old white guys in Lycra testifying all at the same time, you know, all in a row, but that it was spaced out and and that you had um, people of different ages and genders and income backgrounds and and ethnicities. And it it was actually the the most diverse public hearing that Chesterfield County has seen in recent years. Um, And the number of people that spoke in opposition, there was still a a bunch, 17 people, but it's the same folks that showed up to everything in the past, um, and it, they look, it looked like the guy that I showed you. Um, so I'm going to show you just a, uh, a, a snippet from the public hearing. This is a woman that we brought over to the hearing from the Jeff Davis uh, Highway Corridor. She lives in a trailer park, and she's going to tell her story um, about why adoption of the plan was so important to her. I'm not exactly sure how to. Yeah. 
So that's pretty powerful testimony. I mean, to have someone address a board of elected officials and say, what is my life worth? I guarantee you no one in the opposition could even make that claim. It just wasn't about that, right? Um, and she wasn't the only, I mean, there were, I could show you a whole night's worth of powerful testimony, um, but that one really sticks out. Just to give you, a, I mean, just to give you a sense of what the boardroom looks like, it's, it's intimidating, it's, there's bright lights, it's hot. You have to look at yourself on TV while you're testifying. Terrifying. Um, and so it was, a very, it was a very powerful moment. So the plan passed that evening. Um, it still only passed three to two, but it, it did. Um, and what happened next was uh, there was an ordinance adopted that um, basically requires developers to uh, pay for 
anything that's on the bikeways and trails plan to be built with new development um, in exchange for uh, some some setback relief and stuff like that, kind of technical things. Um, but it was a big implementing tool of the bikeways and trails plan. Um, but the, I mean, the story doesn't end here. It's going to take years and years to to build this out and. Chuck talked about groundbreakings and, and stuff like that. We haven't even gotten there. I mean, there's very little funding dedicated to the plan, so that all of this advocacy work just really has to continue on if anything is going to get built. But there are bits and pieces um, happening with development, which is great. Uh, so just a, a few takeaways. Um, t timing is really everything. Uh, this, this opportunity came at a, at a pretty great time. Um, it stood alone from the uh, general update of the, of the comprehensive plan, so we were able to really focus on just this one chapter. Um, the different stakeholders that were identified along the way, whether they were farmers, uh, people who live in trailer parks, um, recreational cyclists, service workers, it's really important to get a, a big, broad picture of who who you're dealing with and who the plan is going to affect. Make sure that people are telling the right stories. Um, and if, if, uh, if people aren't showing up, if you don't have opposition coming to your public meetings, you, you're not going out and you're, you're not finding the opposition. <laughs> you need to go to them because if you don't, they will, it'll, it'll backfire basically. They're gonna say we were left out of the process and then the whole thing will get stalled. So opposition is not necessarily a bad thing. It means that you're reaching everybody, but you have to know how to deal with the opposition and you need to have organized proponents and advocates who can you know, maneuver around them. Uh, there will always be opposition. So that's, that's the story. Um, if you want to look at the plan, the, the website is here. If you would like more information about the Bike Walk RVA program, our website's here. And uh, I'll turn it back over to Rex. Thank you very much. We can go right into Q&A. Yeah, why don't, you, why don't you hang out? So... A couple of uh, quick things. We're going we're to move into question and answer. Hopefully you guys have tons of burning questions. I'm going to come out to the audience and uh, pass the mic and uh, take questions. These guys are going to be up on here with my colleague, Peter Krebs. Um, one of the things that we got to do when we got this grant to work in partnership with the Planning District Commission from the Community Foundation was to hire a, a, our own max, um, essentially. And that is Peter. Uh, who's a recent graduate from the planning department at UVA and uh, worked in the community on a plan as part of his graduate work looking at how to connect the downtown mall to Monticello as, a, as their project. And uh, had some, some great community outreach work that he did as part of that. And he's a natural fit for this job. And we're, we're excited to bring him on board. Um, so he's going to uh, moderate the thing up here. I'm going to work down there. Um, one of the other things I wanted to mention is um, one of the reasons that we had uh, uh, Chuck around for some meetings this morning and, and during the day today is because the planning or the um, Board of Supervisors is meeting at this moment. So Alamo County Board of Supervisors, there were many representatives from the Board of Supervisors who wanted to be here tonight to see this presentation who are, who are very excited about this work and, and are one of our partners on this 
but they couldn't attend. So we set up a bunch of opportunities for Chuck to meet with them one on one today, uh, which was which was again great to have his time. So if anybody's you, you know noticed that there aren't as many elected officials here, that's that's why they many of them did want to come and actually got chastised for scheduling at the same time before the supervisor meeting that I should have done was happening. Um, so with that. Um, do you want to go next and then and start the question and answer? And I'll be down here for when you're ready. Okay, so this mic's turned on. Great. Um, thanks, gentlemen. Um, uh, also, I, I should point out that not only are the supervisors not here because they're in the meeting, but almost all the county staff needs to be on call for that. So they've been amazing partners and don't read anything to uh, whether they're here or not. And indeed, some of them are here, in fact. So how about questions for our guests? Stephen. Um, in the Arkansas project, I'm curious of the 30, I think it's $30 million total, for Yes, so I, I budgeted a million dollars, and I was in control of all million of it, and I spent six hundred thousand. So, and I spent a third of it on one property. It was really difficult. He uh, was the only commercial property that had high value. So just the process was we did a market value study and we got it to per square foot cost, not per acre. And we paid by the square foot. We did appraisals on every property. Those appraisals had to be submitted to another appraiser to certify the appraisal. Then they had to be submitted to the state of Arkansas to certify the state of Arkansas. And then all that could be challenged on the property. So 12 property owners challenged us, said we'll take you to court and we'll solve it there. We got into the process of going to court, and I was given authorization to negotiate with those 12 in blocks of $10,000, and we settled all of them on the market. Already a follow-up on that. I was going to ask this before Stephen asked that. In the domain for trails, do you have experience with communities doing that, or is it always off the table and never considered? What I tell people is that eminent domain actually has its place, and so in Arkansas, the property owners called for eminent domain. They wanted a judge and jury to decide, which was a smart move on their part. We were never going to win in the court of law. So um, they actually exercised the right of eminent domain, which forced it into a, a judicial process, uh, which changes the rules. But uh, that was only for 12. So the majority didn't do that. We never suggested using it. We like to be friendly in our negotiations with people who like to try to sell them on the benefits. And um, so that, that's, and I've been at this for you know, 30, 34 years, and we've rarely ever uh, used any domain to solve uh, acquisition problems. Um. Yep. Hi, uh, so with all the experience that you've had, um, you, it sounded like it's hard to find examples of greenways that address all the needs of the community and don't necessarily push marginalized communities out when property values rise. 
Can you cite any examples of greenways that don't do that? Well, it's it's not so much to me about the greenway is is when that gentrification and that value change begins to happen. Uh, the community needs to act and go in and understand all the variables. So in uh, Little Havana in Miami, it was um, the, the the hottest real estate market in South Florida, South Beach, and then along comes the Miami River, and all of a sudden it became the hottest real estate market in Little Havana's next door. So Miami had to really go in and essentially figure out how to stabilize uh, the rental structures and and, and the change in values that are going on. And that's not, that's very complicated to do. Um, so I don't, I don't come loaded with examples of where that's been successful, but I, but I think right now it's one of the hottest topics that's being studied since it's happening on the High Line in New York and it's happening on the Atlanta Beltline and it's happening on the 606. So I think we're going to see a whole new way of studying that comes out that really begins to figure out what is that dynamic at work and, and is there anything we can do? to uh, make sure we protect affordable housing and um, if, if we can stop the gentrification, but it's, it's really, I think it's very difficult to do because of the way that we set up real estate in the United States and the way that we insist that market forces sort of you know, control these factors. The, I think one community that I've actually gone to that I think has done it really well is Seattle. And they're kind of going block by block and they're embedding affordable housing in the middle of market rate housing. Um, so it does not it does not stand out, it does not look you know unique. And the, and the city of Seattle is investing in protecting that affordable housing. So it's all you know in their opinion it will always be available. And I think we'll see more of those kind of actions uh, going forward. So thank you. Thank you. Right right there in the middle, Rex. Yep. Chuck, I'm curious to see the plan for Greenway so frequently uh, the neighbors of people complaining about how the skies would fall. In Virginia, I think the Damascus Trail, the Virginia Capitol Trail. When you go back five or ten years later to survey, you realize property values have gone up. People love that amenities like they've been to golf course. Have you done any surveys or studies on the Razorback Trail to see what people think of that? Absolutely, and it's, it was immediate. Um, we, we, we really didn't even have the trail grand opening, and all, all of a sudden, the desire line you know, was happening and the attraction was there. So what we observed was a couple of things. We observed that um, developers were looking for spots. And when I say developers, I have to be a little careful about what I mean by that. There were a lot of young uh, people looking for startup businesses, and in their mind, the place they wanted to be was on the Greenway, or within a block or two of it. So they were, um, they were looking at the real estate in six communities and trying to pick real estate that fit their, their pocketbook, essentially, and go in there and, and have that location. The, the greatest example of that was the core brewing company, which insisted that they had to have a draft house right on the Greenway. Um, so they were looking for a place, and they found a spot in downtown Springdale, which at the time we started the project, the real estate market was incredibly depressed. You know, the downtown was abandoned for the most part. Um, the the you know, unoccupied buildings was the dominant aspect of the landscape. Once the agreement was completed, that flipped in a matter of about 12 to 18 months. And it's really full of uh, young startup businesses that are really succeeding. So we didn't, you know, we didn't really have the, so far, we haven't had the impact of gentrification going on. 
um, but we've had a lot of success with that. And that was instantaneous. So it didn't really take long for people to realize this was going to be a great place to locate a business. And, and so those real estate values began changing. Ali, had a question? It depends on the quality of greenway. If you're looking at the ratio back, that was like a million dollars per mile. Um, that was a concrete trail, 12 foot by, to build ASHTO standards um, with bridges, drainage features, you know, trailheads, that kind of thing. Um, and actually, in, in Memphis, our costs are a little bit higher, but we have much more difficult terrain to navigate. And so we're building a lot more drainage structures and a lot more bridges. On one phase, we have six bridges. So and there, the spans on the bridges are 135 at the high end, the long end, the 30 on the low end. So we're spending uh, about a million and a half per mile in that particular project. Can you drive these costs down? You can. Um, you can go with something that isn't going to be cash, but I'm not sure if you want to. Uh, so that's a question you have to answer if you're primarily just going to serve pedestrian needs or if you could serve multi-modal needs. But I would say, for the purpose of budgeting, that I would probably use about a million dollars per mile for budgeting the kind of facilities that I showed. I see Dave, but how about a question for Max? I see one right here in the middle. Capital improvement budget for 
the first year of the fiscal year. He'll take that half a million. He might not spend it all right away. He might use uh, state revenue sharing to double it. He might use it as a match for transportation alternative set-aside grants or CMAC grants. Um, a lot of what gets built in, in our region is state or federal funds, and not a lot is local capital dollars, so there just isn't a lot of taste for that. Let's have one more question. Here we take one more question. And while this, we're doing this last question, we're going to be handing out some, uh, some feedback for you guys. Kathy? In the city of Raleigh, when we launched the bike plan for the city of Raleigh, the city of Raleigh was in the same position they really couldn't fund. So with paint, just with the cost of paint, we identified about 15 or 20 miles of bike facility that the city of Raleigh could do for a million dollars. And you know, part of the trick is, is arranging the budget with what you have to get the city on the ground. And it really was pivotal because it then sort of showed people the impact and, and then they were able to do bigger funding and go forward. So, thanks, Hi, this is a question from Max. I'm Kathy Gallup, I'm one of the um, city councilors in Charlottesville. And um, my question is, you mentioned something in one, of your, one part of your presentation where you, you had to put on your advocate hat. And so my question is, at one point, do you, what do you see as most important? Uh, is it having an internal champion within the, the state government, within the city government, employee, or is it a champion on the elected officials bench? Or is it the advocacy on the outside? What is most important? When should, what happened when? And who is coordinating? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, all of that is important. The plan, the Chesterfield plan would have never moved forward if there wasn't at least a champion on the Board of Supervisors. And at the time, there was more than one. So there was that. Without Heather Barrar on the county staff driving things forward, and really like being a true believer, it's kind of what I refer to her as, she's like the Leslie Nope of Chesterfield, um, the plan wouldn't have moved forward. And then you have to have advocates on the ground, but I'd say on the ground it's most important to have advocates in the, in the actual community that you are advocating in. Um, Bike Walker Bay is a regional organization, and so we, are, we deal in Hanover, Chesterfield, City of Richmond, Henrico County, Ashland. But our staff doesn't live in all of those places, and so that's why we host things like the Bike Walker Bay Academy. We actually go to another locality train up 20 advocates who, who live there and who are constituents. I mean, it's much more effective to have one of your constituents contact you about something than to have a special interest group or the person who doesn't live in your district contact you, right? So that we try to harness that community. I guess the thing is, is just getting the other electeds to be so you do need multiple. Right. Yeah, I mean, you can't pass a, you can't pass a plan with one champion on the board of supervisors or one champion on the city council. Uh, developers come in real handy um, if you have developers that believe in, in your vision to help 
maybe sway some of the elected officials. Um, I'd say generally, like if you do a quick vote count and you, there's no way that you're gonna get a majority, you have more work to do before you even embark on a plan like that. I mean, it's just math, right? Awesome, well, um, let's have a little round of applause for our speakers, Chuck and Matt. Thank you. So inspirational. Um, also, a big thanks to uh, the Jefferson School for hosting us. What a beautiful environment to start our endeavor in, and right in the middle of town, and means a lot. Uh, also, thanks to our excellent volunteers, Aaron and Nico. Um, and also, this whole thing is going to be driven by our energy, like lowercase our uppercase hour, everyone in this room. So if you would like to volunteer, see me afterward and we'll find some work for you. There's plenty to go around. Um, super thanks to our peers at the TJPDC who are, they haven't been up here on the stage, but they are equal partners in this endeavor. Um, and especially the Community Foundation for their ongoing support for this. Um, so Aaron gave out a, a bunch of mini questionnaires that ask four questions and uh, pins. Go ahead and fill those out before you go and I drop them back off in the bucket that Bree's holding up high there. And um, also I'm really excited to announce our follow-up event, which uh, we're co-sponsoring with the CACF. That's going to be called Cypherways. It'll be brainstorming greenways with a hip-hop beat. It's going to be super fun. That's a week from Friday, so the 17th, from uh, 6 to 8 at Live Arts. And there should be a card for that in your little packet. Don't give that back to Bree unless you hate the idea of going or you definitely plan on not going. Um, so, so that's it. So thank you and good night and onward forward.